Welcome. You're listening to Misty Radio on WMBR Cambridge 88.1 FM. I'm your host, Sanaya Samson-Hill. In this episode, we have our students and partners from the UK and Denmark who are addressing inequities related to food and STEM spaces. While these issues are prevalent in the US, we wanted to share the work others are doing in those countries. What are the similarities? What are the differences? We also have interviews with Misty alumni who have extensive experiences with the countries where they have interned. Did you know that MIT students can intern after graduating? Also, sometimes our students go on to move to those countries to work. We hope you enjoy the journey. We now turn to the United Kingdom, home to Misty's newest program. We will be listening to an excerpt of a webinar conversation about how some of the country's leading biotech innovators are responding to the COVID-19 pandemic. The conversation is moderated by MIT faculty directors, Dr. Phil Budden and Professor Fiona Murray. Professor Murray is also the Dean of Innovation and Inclusion at MIT. They're joined by Dr. Gozia Trinka, the Experimental Science Director at the Sanger Institute, a research group studying genome sequences to advance understanding of biology and improve health. We are also joined by Eliza Edison, Head of Operations for Fabric Nano, a company that uses, quote, DNA origami, to produce biochemicals at an industrial scale. The conversation took an interesting turn towards discussing gender and racial disparities within STEM innovation communities and the disproportionate effect the pandemic is having on women and people of color. We pick it up with Eliza Edison. We, I'm the only woman employed at our business. Um, I started just a couple of days before the pandemic and I haven't had a, uh, I haven't had a chance to fix it yet. So I, I will own the problem because I'm in charge, but I, I, I haven't been given an opportunity to fix it yet. But the, uh, to Fiona's point about how much this pandemic is affecting disproportionately um, lower socioeconomic and different groups of people, um, it's women are losing their jobs much more than men and they're not getting them back. And while that is largely because women hold the majority of minimum wage jobs in the world um, and have caregiving responsibilities, I'm acutely aware of how a lot of the fact, like a lot of, no matter how stressful and complicated our planning was for this crisis, the maj- the vast majority of the business is um, unmarried, childless white dudes. And so there were just a million things that made their lives easier and made it easier to navigate that. Um, and so I'm aware of that and want, I'm, I'm I guess, I, I, I cannot begin to emphasize how much I think we're missing out on amazing scientists by only, by not having women and people of color on the team. So that has nothing to do with the crisis. That's just honestly the only thing on my mind at all times. Well, that's a great point. And let me sit back because this is an amazing panel. And I'd like Fiona to come in and engage with you two uh, directly. And hopefully this has not been lost on anybody, that this fabulous panel of leaders um, are all women. So Fiona, with that, would you like to come back on some of Eliza's and Angosia's points? Okay, I mean, I, I think... Um... Eliza, you you will, whatever support that we can give you in that mission, um, we would be happy to. We have, as you know, extraordinary students, and I think MIT has done a a pretty good job beginning to sort of really make sure that we have the diversity of young people have the opportunity to come and do their undergraduate degrees with us, um, with some really Herculean effort on the part of our admissions office. And obviously you can't just do that. I know that that's also true in other British institutions. Or I will say that I think the professionalism of admissions in the US is something to really be reckoned with. Um, I think when you get into the PhD level, and Goja, I think you probably mostly deal with, if if I understand it, a Sanger with the PhD level, um, it's a little different. But 
It is interesting. There's some really interesting facts that if you look at publication rates, publication rates among men have either remained steady or gone up and among women have gone down. And so there clearly are these differential effects that you even see. And so I, I have economics PhD students dying to, you know, get their hands on the data. Um, I think the first thing is recognition. The second thing is giving voice to the challenges that we see. And then the third thing is taking action. And those actions, in my experience, um, I feel I've seen this fairly sort of closely at MIT with me in, in some of this work, requires doing quite a lot of different things simultaneously to make sure that we create that sort of opportunity for inclusion. And that's thinking about you in a small organization, a small company, that's hard work. Um, and so making sure that we give you the support you need. And I, I think, you know, Tony and others um, in the community, I think will be fellow travelers and, and able to help and support that. Um, so I think those are really essential and it does come down to every individual team and every individual organization. When we don't solve any of these problems really at the macro level, although there are obviously systematic things we can change, but. Eliza, you're nodding, would you like to come in? I completely agree. And it's, it's you know, we talk about all the things we can do in this time when the Black Lives Matter movement has brought so much to the fore of all of our conversations. And really what we can do is influence our immediate spheres as much as we can. Like there's broader systemic things, there's voting, there's donating, there's protesting, but in our immediate world, what are you doing to challenge the, the way the world looks? And, um, and, and so, yes, I was nodding emphatically as I do anytime anyone talks about the need to increase diversity of any type on any team. I find that in, in tech world in the UK, I'm very often encounter, and so we're in kind of a weird dynamic where everybody on the panel or that doesn't have a British accent is in the UK, and everybody that does is in the States. So I don't know if this is a fair point to make, but what I've encountered is a lot of people saying that they, two things, one or two things. One, they have a very diverse team because they have people from all sorts of countries in Western Europe. And I'm like, I don't know how to explain this to you. <laughs> we need a little bit more than that. Um, and like, yes, those are, but they don't really grasp the importance of, of, of racial and, and ethnic diversity. Um, and also I recently had a counter argument to diversity efforts I was making within our own team that I'd never heard before. And you kind of assume by the time you're a few years into your career that you've heard all of the stupid things. Um, but this argument was, I pointed out that I was the only woman at the business and this uh, senior scientist chimed in to say, well, we had so-and-so and so-and-so. And -so. I'm like, yeah, well, they're like now just on consulting. They're not working with us anymore. He's like, yeah, but like total, it's three. And I'm like, I'm sorry, are you counting our diversity metrics cumulatively? And I was like, what do you, when you go to your bank account, do you count how much money you've ever had in your whole life? Or do you count how much is in there right now? I, I'd never heard the argument before. And I honestly was want. gobsmacked. So I, I was just nodding emphatically at the genre, I think. Okay, excellent. And, and there's a question for you, uh, Eliza, in the chat that we'll come back to in a moment. But meanwhile, Goja. Yes. Um, well, I've got a question to Fiona. I, I would love to hear more about from you about um, what to do proactively. Because, I mean, there is, we, we keep thinking about it a lot. And, and Eliza, you are making a good point about, you know, having people from, um, different countries in Europe, there are socioeconomical, um, you know, um, differences within Europe and we have very different population demographics, but this is by no means a justification not to be more proactive and be more inclusive. So I'd love to, it's a big challenge when you don't sort of have that pool 
very easily accessible how how can you help to enhance that diversity and something that we would like to do much more but i just wanted to comment on our end what we're thinking about in terms of what we can do is actually thinking about the diseases and and the genetic data that we're using a lot of that is generated from white european populations and that's a big problem generally for the whole community and there's more and more discussion and more and more push for generating data from diverse populations and it really becomes apparent in a situation like COVID-19 that disproportionately affects more um, well ethnic minorities or not white Caucasians um, so having more if we had the same amount of data but for for individuals with different ethnic backgrounds we could have learned far more already at this point about the disease so that's one problem that we want to address more proactively, be able to seek what kind of data sets are out there that we can integrate them to be more inclusive on our end, not just to go with sort of the, um, the easy solution of let's just go for the biggest data sets that are easily available. Another challenge is um, diagnosis of diseases and a lot of data sets that are out there rely on data sets you know, generated in Europe in, in, in Northern America. And diagnosis of certain diseases is very different between different ethnicities. Again, that's something we don't think about, but we started thinking about it. There's big homework for us to do, but um, there are things that we can do in terms of work on our end that we're trying to, to, to address. Yeah, I, I'll, be, I'll be brief. I mean, Geja, I think what you point out about the data and that what we know about disease and diseases is, is often very, it's about, it's generated by data on a narrow subset of, in, of individuals for historical reasons. Um, a lot of it is more likely to be generated on um, data sets of men versus women, especially with respect to particular drugs and, and clinical trials. Is, I think you're absolutely right. This is a really important moment for us to, to understand that because we've absolutely seen that with the way in which COVID has sort of ravaged certain groups more than others. Um, I'm really in, excited that places like, so I've been working quite a lot with King's College on some of their work at their innovation district all along the river. And part of what they do is they are on the south side of the Thames and reach into some quite poor communities and really thinking about how they can engage those communities into their research, I think is absolutely essential and interesting and important. Um, I think in terms of how we get a more diverse group of people into STEM, into pipelines, one of the things that I think MIT has thought a lot about and we're trying to do is to what I would call oversample. I mean, I think you just have to, and that requires a lot of effort to go and not just give the job, put the job in, um, description into the usual places, not just to rely on our social networks, right? Because all of our networks are full of people who are quite like us. We are all like birds of a feather flock together. If we looked at any one of our LinkedIn, we would see that, right? I have probably, you know, a very particular sort of set of people and I try very hard to think beyond that. So I think we have to really work, do the, go the extra mile and to try and target places where we think there'll be more people oversample. And then I think we have to work on some of the biases in the interview process. So I have a theory um, that is supported by some amount of data that interview processes in general also just sort of bring out the bias in all of us, even though we're all good humans individually. How we think somebody fits and what have you is can be challenging and so there's some really I think good methods and techniques around better interview structures um, 
and using data and what have you to help us. So I think there's some, there are some opportunities, but it just requires work. I actually feel I'm reminded of our student, Katie, who has that fantastic startup called uh, Clara, which mm -hmm. is using some AI to basically take resumes and understand them in terms of competence and then take job descriptions and then do competency matching that helps you get rid of some of the bias in hiring, which is really interesting. Up next is the song Sun for Someone by UK artist Oscar Jerome.
Due to the COVID pandemic, MISTI experiences are different this summer. Presently, we are providing remote internships for students who want to work with institutions abroad, but cannot travel. We are also working on providing opportunities for international students to intern in their home countries. Connor Kirby is one of our students who had to convert his in-person internship at Sumitomo Heavy Industries in Japan to a remote one, where he would continue working in his home country of England. Luckily, some of his work could be translated virtually. With Chris Pilkovich, the Managing Director for MIT Japan, Kirby recounts his experiences interning abroad and what it was like to transition into a virtual space. Tell us your name, um, what you studied at MIT or focus. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Colin Kirby. I graduated in 2019 with physics and mechanical engineering. Originally came into MIT really thinking I wanted to do like theoretical things like physics and maths. But I think over my time, first of all, I, when I was doing Europe at MIT, I kind of, I was doing physics based ones, but I didn't quite know enough physics to do the real physics. So they kind of just made me do the electronics, which I found myself really enjoying the kind of physical side of that and how it felt very tangible in what I was doing. And then I got more into the idea of doing something that felt like I was really affecting people. So I got into more like mechanical engineering. And so I only really started doing mechanical engineering in my sophomore year, like second semester, pretty much. So I, I had to kind of like pack it in pretty quickly. But I really enjoyed having this kind of mix of experiences. I, I still really like problems that kind of mix the kind of theoretical with the practical. So this past summer, so after you graduated, yeah, you went to Japan mm -hmm. to do an internship at Sumitomo Heavy Industry. So can you tell us, um, one, why you decided to do an internship in Japan, to whether this is equally part of the question of mm -hmm. why with Sumitomo Heavy Industry? Yeah, of course. Um, so I took, most people will know the big course two class that's 2009. Uh, the very like huge the showcase. Show. Yeah, the showcase. Yeah. Um, for some reason or other, I decided to take the medical devices class instead, which is one of the kind of equivalents, essentially because I I thought, again, with the idea of me wanting to go into kind of effective technology. Um, that I thought medical devices would fit more with what I wanted to do in the future. Um, and one of the projects they gave us, they gave us like a list of projects. And the one I ended up getting into was the one by Sumitomo, uh, working on a, like a brand new MEG, which is essentially a device used to measure the magnetic waves generated when you think, which is first when I like they gave the presentation about that. I was like, that's amazing. Like, that's so interesting. Um, so it was really fascinating getting to work on that. It was obviously we were connecting with them um, virtually. So I guess it's a bit like what I'm doing now, <laughs> but it was with um, Eric and it was a great experience working with them. And it was a very um, new piece of technology that felt very exciting and something I hadn't really thought about before. And so I got a lot of good experiences working on that. And then I found myself at the end of, this would have been the fall of senior year. 
Um, and I was looking into doing graduate school because I was interested in doing my master's before kind of looking into work because I wanted to find something like more specific that I was interested in. And because, because like I said, I started engineering in sophomore year, I felt like my intuition hadn't fully developed to the point I wanted, if that makes sense. Like I feel like to the point that most students would have. I talked to, yeah, I, I was applying for masters, but at the same time I was like, I should look for other things just to keep my options open. And I spoke to Sumitomo because I know they've had internships before. And I spoke to them, I said, look, I, I don't know any Japanese, um, but I would be, it would be really amazing like working for you guys, at least over the summer, with the idea being maybe that I'd have a master's to start like in September. Um, so we kind of kept that conversation going a bit. And I know you at, at some point got added into that conversation as well. And then the master's stuff came around and I didn't get into the places I wanted. I got one offer that, they wanted me to like find private funding for and I just like I couldn't I couldn't really do that if I'm honest so I spoke to Sumitomo more and I was like what about like a, a year because to me three months didn't quite feel like I get especially coming in with without any language skill in Japanese at all which I'm always entirely grateful that you allowed me to like you still helped me even though I didn't have that kind of criteria with the kind of misty thing. Um, and from, yeah, the year thing, it kind of slowly developed. And actually the day I finally knew I was definitely doing that was graduation day when I came to you and got the flights, which I thought was quite good. Um, but it was definitely stressful when all my friends basically knew what they were doing from like September. And I found out on graduation day. So you were doing your internship in Japan mm -hmm. and it sort of, um, we were confronted, we were abrupt, abruptly uh, uh, shaken up by the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so you had to, we had to repatriate you. Mm -hmm. um, you were in the middle, you hadn't finished your internship, but within a few days, you were on a plane back to UK, back yeah. home. Um, and, but we were able to, with you in discussion with SHI, Sumitoma Heavy, that you were able to continue your internship in the UK where you mm -hmm. are still doing your internship. Could you talk a little bit about having to having, well, the realization that you're going to have to leave Japan because of, of the coronavirus, you know, COVID-19 and you were repatriated and then figuring out how was the transition of going from, a regular internship going to the office every day to now working remotely i didn't take it too badly i think because i was seeing everything around the world happening and it felt like a minor occurrence or a minor problem compared to a lot of the things i was seeing personally obviously i wanted to continue to be in the country i was really enjoying the time being in japan enjoying being around new people and being around a new culture and being in the office is a very different experience to just being at home and trying to work at things. I definitely kind of lost some momentum in terms of what I got done, if I'm honest, when I came back here. Um, but I certainly wouldn't have wanted to just stop working suddenly because, you know, I, I put some effort into what I was making and I wanted to finish it in a way that I felt proud of. And 
I knew for me, if it's something's just going to suddenly cut off, I, I don't get that kind of satisfaction that it's just finished like that. So I definitely had it on my mind that I wanted to continue to work remotely. And luckily, um, I actually kind of was working on two projects with them in a way. And the first one was purely kind of mechanical. And so that I obviously would not have been able to do remotely. But luckily, I was also at the same time working on like a simulation for them. And so essentially, I just took that simulation and they sent it to me and I work on them on my personal. Like I'm able to work on that, you know, remotely and it's okay. It's definitely not the same not being around the office. And it was certainly a very interesting office experience. Like I think even one that when I would talk to Japanese people about it outside the company, they're like, wow, like I've never done these things before. That's like you do the like morning exercises, like the wearing the uniform everyone's saying like go and zen me like <laughs> very like factory like scenario and like every lunchtime i would walk around with some friends around the like shipyard and like i've never i've never been on a shipyard before but i was seeing it every day at that point it was just such a different i think I, like I, I gained just as much as from that as as the work itself like being in that environment and kind of seeing it and getting a sense of what people do day to day in that kind of environment was very fascinating. Yeah. Besides fascinating. So what are some of the insights like into this of a different lifestyle, different culture that you were living in for mm. six, close to six months or yeah, so, yeah. six, seven months, six, seven months. Um, hmm. I think, so first of all, I had kind of, coming in some of the, I mean, we had the like great lectures from you and some people that also came to give like guest lectures on the like Misty series. And that was really helpful in giving me a, a certain mindset coming in. But I think actually, I think specifically because I was in research, it didn't end up being as quite scary as I thought with the kind of um, like the relationship they have in Japan with, older people, older being the most respected kind of thing, which obviously still holds in that company. And something I understood, I think, like it, it didn't come as a surprise to me, A, because of your lectures and B, because of just a general understanding of, you know, how you, you should treat people. Um, but I think at the, at the, because it was research, I think there just wasn't quite the sense of like, I couldn't, maybe as well, like I, maybe as well because i was a foreigner you get the sense as well that you don't have to you're not expected to fit in fully with that idea of like you can't you know ask your boss questions or like you have to take his word as like fully correct um which is something i spoke to because at the company as well there was as well as kind of uh, chinese and korean workers there was also one Pakistani guy so it was really interesting speaking to him about his perspective on things because from his culture he's very open about talking about everything like it was really nice getting his perspective because he didn't hold anything back which I know from you know like slowly getting to know more and more Japanese people that it's like very much about like reading like reading the air and like reading between the lines about what people really mean and that's very different to his what, how he would express himself. Um, and to be honest, very different to what I experienced in America. 
with how people ex express themselves. But funnily enough, British people tend to have a similar uh, stereotype than Japanese people in that way. So I kind of found it fascinating thinking like, actually, I think I'm more similar to Japanese people than Americans, <laughs> which is an interesting thing to think about. You were straddling wow. several cultures, right? I mean, you're yeah, pretty, yeah. you were then you came to the MIT culture with, you know, quite a number of people who were Americans and then yeah, yeah. going to Japan, which is a different culture on top of that. Yeah. And then talking I, with a different culture employees to get yeah, different yeah. insights. And I love that. I like that's one of my favorite things that I had growing up in London is that it's just so multicultural that you would just hear about so many different experiences and ways of thinking, which I think I struggled with a little bit in Japan with just how single-minded it could feel and how essentially because, you know, like to go from somewhere like London, if I'm honest, where like you'll walk any street and you'll hear maybe like five or six different languages or you'll hear like, you just, you, there's a sense that people can kind of, Mm. they're almost free to be who they who they are which is not to say people aren't like that in japan but i think maybe there's more social rules in a way that dictate how you should behave in certain scenarios and it kind of it's so embedded in a way of thinking that it makes certain things difficult or certain changes difficult to create in that kind of Country, maybe. Shifting just a little, um, I know this is you, you've done some year ops, and mm -hmm. but this was your first real long length internship slash work. Were yeah. there any courses that you took at MIT that you found especially useful in your yeah. work situation? Absolutely, I think. Mm, so first, a, a specific one, I'd say that. Um, as a mechanical engineering student and like, and so coming in with people expecting that I'd have some level of mechanical engineering knowledge and experience, I would say it's this class 2008, maybe heard of it's the yo-yo making class. Oh yes. Yeah. Essentially what you get from that is a, or like what I got from that was a much stronger understanding of how to do like computer aided design. And so the reason that that was so useful to me is because there was, there wasn't someone like my boss wasn't there to teach me that like i got there and it was could you do like oh, i want to work we kind of talked about ideas and then i would just do that like i already knew how to do it it wasn't like i was being taught on the job which I, is very job dependent you might go into a job and it's like we teach you on the job how to use etc cetera, etc cetera, like this software or this um you know package but for this instance it was me coming in with some set amount of knowledge and it's oh let's kind of think about how we can make this but i'm not gonna i don't need to teach you this tech this software because you know how to use it kind of thing i felt quite comfortable doing a quite a lot of things whether it was like coding or um using certain software because i think i i never think of anything as like useless knowledge like any software or any kind of thing that i could see an opportunity to learn like whether it's in the Europe side I was doing with physics, like I learned a lot of data analysis kind of techniques in my physics Europe's, which I wouldn't have known otherwise. And those things I've used 
throughout my time at MIT and now at work. And it's not something I can say came from a class. It just came from um, trying to just kind of get myself out there and be happy to learn whatever comes my way. If I know that the, in general, it's kind of something I'm interested in. If you see what I mean, I don't think I, I personally only looked at MIT for things that I, like I'm definitely, definitely, definitely interested in this. I kind of looked for more of a broad area. Let's focus a little. Next question on Sumitomo Heavy yeah. industry. So what would you say, let's say if you have to give a pitch for them, what kind yeah. of recommendation, what was some positive, I mean, or, you know, like you can also highlight some challenges too, because with any work situation, you're going to have the good and bad, not, not bad, but things that you're going to have to learn, whether Absolutely. it's about yourself or about how to do the work. Um, can you talk a little bit about Sumitomo Heavy Industries in that, in that Absolutely. perspective? So I think most students, if they were looking at working at Sumitomo, for example, they're likely to join, again, like I said, the research area, which is just a, it's just a much more relaxed environment in terms of the work you're able to do and the, how you're able to approach people compared to how I, what I've heard about and kind of like, like sales or like those kind of areas where it's very cutthroat. I think with the research, cutthroat doesn't really work well in that way because it isn't creating the right environment to people, to allow people to think kind of freely and kind of make up new ideas. So I think from there, I, I definitely felt like there was the, a great environment for um, learning from others and for kind of working on your what you think is right or like working like talking with your boss to work out together what is right which maybe isn't necessarily what you find everywhere in the world or especially everywhere in you know japan maybe um so there and at the same time because it's a large corporation they have you know huge facilities and it meant i got to learn about a lot of different um, tools and a lot of different uh, ways of doing things on a kind of like mass scale, which isn't something I've seen before. And so I, I found it very, it had a good mix because it felt like a, a smallish team that I was with. And so I, I got to get a lot of knowledge from them, but a large company. And so I could see what that kind of large scale looks like. And so I think I got a good mix of experiences there. Um, of course, there were parts that were difficult. I think, like I said, I think I, I, I was at a level, I think, with my understanding of Japanese that I could converse with people individually. But if I would hear, I feel like if you're in a normal office scenario, if you would maybe find around you, you'd hear like conversations going on and you might be like, oh yeah, like, you know, I, I did that too. Or you, you'd find ways to like get involved. And I think breeds like relationships in good ways in a more natural way but i found it hard to kind of hear a conversation without context and know what they're talking about fully so i kind of feel a bit especially a bit awkward kind of trying to say oh what are you talking about like kind of feeling so i would only really talk to people individually which is good but it's not it doesn't breed the same kind of like group relationship i think so I still was able to like make good friends and like we'd go and play football together, like outside of 
uh, work, which was really nice. And it was like, people were very active in trying to, you know, get, you know, get me involved in like, join right. me in as well. So uh, going back, football, soccer, America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry. Right? But <laughs> I should is this big? Is big in Japan and, and, it is and big sports is a, is a way of communicating. It is. And on top of that, if I'm honest, like, and I think this is something that's known in Japan as well, it is quite big. Or one, a student should know that they will likely learn a lot about the workers around them at like, I don't know what, like a bonenkai, like a, like the, 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 the evening dinner slash yeah, drinking, drinking slash situation. Drinking, yeah, kind of situation. And I think it's receptions, reception kind of thing. Yeah. It's important to take advantage. Not it's important to go to those events. I would say like, it's like one of the best times that people kind of very much relaxed and they were able to like, without worrying too much, like converse with me or like talk, you know, ask, like ask about England, ask about America. Like we were able to like open up about a lot of things that I think the office environment just doesn't create for them. And it makes it very hard to do. And that's fair. And like, I completely understand that. And again, I actually think that's pretty similar to England in that way. Like the pub becomes like the, you know, the spot to actually learn about people in England. But yeah. So I, I think if it's, I think it's important to embrace that as you go. I think it, it definitely makes your time more enjoyable. So what are some, you're, you're winding down. I think this is your last month, right? It's my last week. Last week. I worked due on Friday. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. What are some next steps? Um, so I starting, I'm starting my master's actually in mechanical engineering, uh, at Imperial in October. Hopefully <laughs> there's no like, um, hiccups with, you know, coronavirus, but oh, congratulations. at the moment, oh, thank you very much. At the moment they want to, I think, make it as, as normal. But again, I think it depends on how things develop. Um, until then I did have like a internship planned with uh, startup but I think because of the environment that's on at the moment it might be that they can't take me on it might even be where they work at the moment is has been closed for the past like two months so it's mm. difficult to know if they've even still exist as a company so I'm still in contact and we'll see but um, from now until October I'll kind of do the best I can kind of continue learning continue like developing the skills that I wanted that I wish I did at MIT kind of thing uh, while I have the time and also trying to find ways to like volunteer while I have this time kind of volunteer myself uh, to help others in this kind of pandemic. Um, so I guess my last question uh, would be how do you think you spent quite a bit of your latter part of your MIT career, learning mm -hmm. about Japan, working with Japanese colleagues in the US then going to Japan and now you're back getting ready for your master's course. Do you think you'll mm -hmm. keep Japan in your life and how you might you think that might be? Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely wanna keep it in my life. I now, A, I now have this kind of huge fascination for uh, language acquisition in general and the process and like uh, 
um, I've still been continuing like learning Japanese and I'm finding myself kind of more interested in like Japanese books and poetry like Kenzaburo and like some of his books and they're, they're very difficult to read so I'm, uh, I'm kind of going more with yes. either audio books alongside it to kind of get a you know get the reading of the kanji <laughs> alongside <laughs> it because it's very difficult like it's been such a interesting thing to learn about the kind of language side of things and it's just a very different way of thinking the unprecedented circumstances of the COVID-19 pandemic have created a great deal of stress and uncertainty for everyone. The Massachusetts General Hospital Department of Psychiatry has put together a guide to mental health resources for COVID-19. This up-to-date set of resources includes expert recommended strategies for individuals dealing with mental health conditions, as well as strategies for maintaining well-being and promoting resilience for adults, children, healthcare providers, and family caregivers. To access these resources, search for Guide to Mental Health Resources for COVID-19 at massgeneral.org. MIT Denmark has had a connection with the Food Lab at Denmark Technical University since the MISTI program was established. The Food Lab is a space where researchers and students can create innovative solutions to global food problems through interdisciplinary work. Madeline Smith, the program manager for our Denmark program, spoke to Roberto Flore, head of the lab, and Andrea McClave, a MISTI alum who interned there and was hired permanently. They talked about the importance of addressing issues like food scarcity and health, and how Andrea connected her MIT and MISD experiences to her current work. Take a listen. Hello everyone, my name is Roberto Flore. I'm the manager of the DTU Skylab Food Lab, and uh, I have a background in um, agricultural development, and uh, I've been working in the world of uh, food system change since uh, 20 years now, and uh, the Food Lab has been founded in uh, 2018, and uh, before uh, being the manager here in, uh, in the Food Lab, I've been running for five years and a half uh, the innovation lab uh, founded by Noma. It's called uh, the Nordic Food Lab. Andrea, you want to introduce yourself uh, next? Uh, yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is Andrea McClave. I'm an alum of the Integrated Design and Management Program at MIT. Uh, graduated in 2019, uh, and I came to the DTU Skylab Food Lab. Uh, right after graduation through the MIT Denmark uh, MISTI program. Uh, first as a MISTI intern and then uh, hired, hired into the food lab as a research assistant. Super. Well, thank you both again for talking to me again. I thought this would, would be a super opportunity just to discuss a little bit the collaboration and also just the very interesting work that, that you do at the Skylab Food Lab. So why don't you tell me a little bit more about what the the DTU Skylab Food Lab does, and, and what does your work there focus on? Uh, yeah, so basically, uh, the, the Food Lab has been uh, uh, founded with a core vision of uh, connecting the dots across the food system. In fact, is a food system change laboratory. We work with food, but also we work with uh, um, uh, also all those uh, uh, value chains that are connecting food with uh, different disciplines related on uh, uh, engineering. So. We do work with uh, students and scientists uh, uh, that are part of the uh, larger uh, 
DTU food environment, but we also uh, connect our research with the uh, students and researchers working in uh, mechanics, for example, or electronics, or uh, simply uh, other projects uh, related on behavioral change. Uh, so more designing experience, for example. Uh, the general uh, concept of the lab is basically uh, divided in three major areas. One is uh, uh, the pure prototyping space where we have uh, uh, a physical uh, uh, laboratory kitchen where students can uh, uh, come and uh, you know, test their own concept. They can also build up their own startup, for example, and uh, they, can, they can produce food. Uh, we do this in collaboration also with the industries and, uh, and, uh, and project partners, but of course primarily is, um, is the space is primarily for students. And uh, we have uh, then the other uh, part of the laboratories that is um, in connection with other workshop area uh, present in Skylab, where we test more uh, technologies and, uh, and more art, art technologies or digital technologies. This is done in connection with uh, uh, our colleagues. And then we have uh, uh, what we call more the humanistic area, where is uh, uh, the place where physically all those critical discussions happen. And here is where we invite uh, uh, all those stakeholders that are not necessarily part of the internal system in DTU, but they will be uh, necessary, I will say, when we are uh, designing this concept of future scenarios for food uh, in um, both in Denmark and in an international uh, context. I wonder if you could give me an example of a project. I love the idea that it's interdisciplinary and that's something that's so critical to, as Andrea can attest, MIT studies that they are interdisciplinary in nature. So I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about one of your projects that, that spans multiple disciplines. Yes. So uh, one of the recent projects uh, that we've been both Andrea and I working together in collaboration with some students, for example, it was uh, a project where um, uh, some students were working on uh, uh, nudging some of the behaviors of young uh, people consuming uh, um, junk food or like not necessarily unhealthy food and they've been designing uh, uh, this new concept in collaboration with uh, an architect company uh, so basically working on designing the spaces surrounding a school in order to uh, nudge uh, the students to to go towards um, uh, let's say with kind of like food truck that can offer more than just food so a food truck that can offer entertainment for example uh, to those uh, students and uh, it can be attractive but at the same time offering the possibility of eating healthy food. I think that's so great. I think it highlights what you've just highlighted is how interdisciplinary the projects are, how they're international, but how they also, in addition to looking at the challenge, a sustainability question, it's really getting to this, the source of the issue and then carrying that forward throughout the entirety of the project. Um, I'd love to learn a little bit more as well, perhaps this is a question for Andrea, about how you utilize your, your MIT training in, in the work that you're doing and sort of how this role is connecting your MIT experience and your MISTI experience um, in your present position. Okay, so yeah, as I mentioned, I was a student of the um, IDM program at MIT, Integrated Design and Management, uh, which is an interdisciplinary master's program, half uh, courses in the engineering school and half in the Sloan School of Management with a core um, 
core coursework within the program itself focused on design methods. And I was particularly interested in how you can apply design engineering methodologies, um, so human-centered design methodologies, human factors, etc., cetera, um, to challenges across the food supply chain. So when I learned of the MIT Denmark program, um, and particularly the opportunity to come and work with the Food Lab and Roberto, I thought that that would be a really great kind of next step and extension of my studies of how to take what I had been, I guess, cultivating and learning more at MIT and in IDM, and then and then applying those that skill set. <laughs> and um, and so when I came to the Food Lab, I was given the opportunity. Um, to develop my own research project uh, related to food system innovation and um, for, for three months for the duration of the, you know, the typical MISTI uh, three-month program. So for the first three months of being here, um, I, I tried to utilize a, the, the process that we had um, honed, I guess, at, at IDM of um, going through stages of user research and need finding uh, and then through the process of um, prototyping and uh, you know iterating on your concept and and kind of potentially you know building it out into something bigger, getting feedback along the way. So yeah, I really enjoyed my experience being here at the Food Lab, getting um, you know a lot of mentorship and input from Roberto and other um, people here at Skylab. Um, trained in you know entrepreneurship and things like that, um, but then also doing a phase of um, user research where I went out and I interviewed farmers, um, people working in retail, other areas of the food supply chain as well, um, to develop out a, a research project. Uh, and then, should I go more into that or just go on to the yeah, next? Yeah, would you tell me a little bit more about your research project? Yeah, um, so one thing that I think is a pretty clear challenge in the food supply chain is the issue of food waste and loss. Uh, so through that first need finding phase, um, I kind of I landed on on food waste and loss as a as a focus area. So um, digging deeper into food waste and loss, I ended up um, exploring for my project um, if it was feasible to apply predictive analytics or other types of mathematical models to help prevent and mitigate on-farm food loss. So that's, uh, well, I was specifically looking into produce, um, so fruits and vegetable loss um, on the farmer's field before it leaves the farm gate. And then understanding if those variables have, I guess, data that can be utilized to help um, predict, you know, when there might be a larger uh, occurrence of, of food loss uh, in the future. Yeah, I mean, I think all of these challenges, when you look at sustainability, when you look at COVID, they're all such, you know, complex problems and you need an interdisciplinary, you need a cross-disciplinary way to approach them, whether that's food systems or whether it's anything else. So I think it's a great way to, to be solutions focused rather than just responding to a problem. So let's try and maybe end on a, like a positive note. So as far as <laughs> future possibilities, um, both for your work in general, but also how we might collaborate and how you might collaborate with others at MIT and around the world. What do you see as um, uh, possibilities for, for getting involved in this type of work? 
one of the, 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 the core elements of, of, of the lab is, uh, is working on radical inclusion. So we really want to build up systems that are inclusive. We really want to work on uh, uh, projects that are visionary. And, uh, and we believe that for doing this, we need to have as much as diversity as possible in the lab. And uh, so this is definitely one of the big opportunities for uh, MIT students to come to the other side of the world and to meet with uh, uh, the community in DTU and to cross-pollinate some of their ideas with uh, uh, people that has maybe completely different background or completely different experience. So we really want to act as a bridging culture uh, uh, place and, uh, and, and I see a lot of uh, uh, opportunities over there. Thank you very much to Stephen Barnes, Phil Budden, Fiona Murray, Eliza Edison, and Gozia Trinka. Also thanks to Chris Pilkovich and Connor Kirby. Finally, thanks to Madeline Smith, Roberto Flore, and Andrea McClave. MISTI Radio is a project from MIT International Science and Technology Initiatives. It is produced in collaboration with me, Sanaya Sampson-Hill, Ari Jakobovitz, Eduardo Rivera, Justin Leahy, Marco De Paula, Noreen Das, and Rosabelli Coelho Kesar. You can listen to us on WMBR Cambridge 88.1 FM or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's close the show with a song from Icelandic artist Askir. The song is called Leandermal. See you next time. Yeah.